Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Father, we've been confronted once again dreadfully of how broken our world is this week. We've seen um, the reality of evil, uh, things beyond our control. And so we would turn to you tonight as uh, the source of our true hope. We do pray for your help, that you'd help us to understand your word. I pray for myself that as I preach to be faithful and clear, but for all of us, that we would be people who believe and live lives that are changed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. On Tuesday evening, thousands of people gathered in Albert Square in Manchester. It was a gathering full of shock as people reeled from the terrible events of the night before. It was a gathering of grief and mourning. It was also a gathering marked by a spirit of defiance. Evil will not win out was part of the mood. And the poet Tony Walsh read a poem about Manchester called This Is The Place. And it, it struck a chord with the people there. And it, it has struck a chord across the nation. It's been everywhere on the news and on social media. A poem of, of defiance. That evil will not win. Uh, Here are some extracts from the poem. I'm no poet, but uh, they are wonderful words. They have left us a spirit. They have left us a vibe. That Mancunian way to thrive and survive. Later on, uh, he continued, because this is a place that has been through some hard times, oppressions, recessions, depressions, and dark times. But we keep fighting back with greater Manchester spirit. It's stirring stuff. It is a poem of defiance. Evil will not win. Uh, We have a firm hope. And the focus of the defiance and defense, well, it's the human spirit, the Mancunian way to thrive and survive, to keep on going through the hard times. And I think because the poem is full of hope and defiance, that's why it struck a chord with the nation. Uh, People are longing for hope when confronted with evil. I wonder this week as we've uh, come to grips with the terrible news, I'm sure we've talked to our our friends, our, 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 our colleagues, our neighbors. What do we make of these events? How do we respond? Where's the hope? It's a good question to ask each one of us tonight. How have we responded to those events? Where do we turn to for hope? We sense, don't we, that evil must not win. We are defiant, aren't we? Yet, where do we turn to for hope? Our reading tonight from 2 Corinthians is all about hope. In fact, uh, we could sum up the whole uh, thrust of what Paul is saying in just one verse, verse 12. He writes, Therefore, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. This chapter is all about hope. And it's not a hope that is based on human effort or the human spirit to somehow ward off evil. It is a hope based firmly on the message of Jesus. Of course, 2 Corinthians is not about terrorism or that kind of evil. But I think once we've understood the kind of hope Paul is talking about, 
then we'll see just how relevant, how, how precious it is to, to trust in Christ in the face of the world that we live in. And we'll also see why Paul is so bold. He will not be quiet. He will go on preaching about Christ even if he looks foolish in the eyes of the world. For he preaches a strong Christ, a controversial Christ, a Christ that challenges and rebukes people who calls for change and repentance, an uncomfortable Christ. The Corinthians are finding his Christ just a little too strong, a little too uncomfortable. There are others around, uh, the, the super apostles, who peddle a different kind of Christ, a Christ who is always popular with the masses. But Paul is very bold. He will not be quiet with his controversial Christ because his Christ is a message of hope. It's a message we need to hear tonight as we see once again the state of the world around us. Tonight Paul explains the hope of verse 12 by way of comparing and contrasting. He takes to something that is glorious and full of hope. And he says, yes, that's brilliant, but let me show you something even better. And so let's come and look at Paul's logic, how he compares and contrasts. His goal is hope. Our first point is this, a benchmarking glory, the ministry of Moses. Look at verse seven, back over the page. Paul says, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Well, I'll stop there before he makes the comparison. He is talking about something truly glorious. He's talking about the ministry of Moses. And if you can keep a finger in 2 Corinthians, then now's the point to turn back to our first reading, Exodus 34 on page 94. This is the text that Paul has in mind when he talks about the ministry of Moses. Look at Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. The book of Exodus shows us that there really is a God. He has a name. He is the Lord. And this one true God has power over every other authority in the world. He can defeat mighty Pharaoh with ease. He can bring his people rescued out of slavery through um, the judgment of the Passover and the Red Sea safely into the desert. He is the one unrivaled, awesome Lord. And why has he done all these things? Well, quite extraordinarily, he's done it because he wants a relationship with his people. He brings them to the mountain and gives them his commands because he wants them to be with him. He wants a relationship. The ministry of Moses was all about a relationship with this one true God. The tablets in verse 29 are the Ten Commandments written on stone, which lay out for the people the conditions upon which they were to relate to this one true God. This coming summer here in the building, we'll have a number of couples getting married and you know how a marriage ceremony works. They, they come forward to the front and um, they declare publicly their intentions towards one another. They, they make their wedding vows. And those vows are the basis on which they enter into a lifelong relationship together. Well, in a similar way, 
these Ten Commandments were to be the basis on which the people of God were to relate to this one true living God, the Lord. And it is a moment of remarkable glory. If we had a a time machine and we could travel anywhere at any time in the course of human history, this moment of glory as the people gather around the mountain would, would be right up there at the top of our bucket list. Imagine the mountain covered in fire and smoke. Imagine realizing that there is a God, he is alive and he lives, or he's dwelling at that point at the top of the mountain in the fire and smoke, the trumpet blasts, the earthquakes. It's because of him. And imagine the thought that he wants a relationship with us. Imagine seeing Moses coming down from the mountain, his face dazzling with a glory not his own. Imagine realizing it's only because he has seen face to face the one true living God who is offering relationship. A benchmark in glory, the ministry of Moses. It is also a scary moment. Notice only Moses has been up the mountain. The people are too scared to go. Uh, they, they, they see the smoke and the fire, they hear the trumpets and they feel the earthquake and they say to Moses, actually, I reckon it's best if you go on your own and we'll stay at the bottom of the mountain. It's, it's too glorious, too awesome to be in the presence of the living God. And so Moses goes on his own, but even Moses, mighty Moses, is unable to be directly in God's presence. Remember back in Exodus 33, just before our chapter, he asks to see God's glory, and God says, you, you can't look at me directly, it's just too awesome. And so to protect Moses from God's glory, God puts him into a cleft in the rock, and God passes by in all his glory, and Moses sees just the hem of his garment as he disappears into the distance. But even that glimpse of God was enough to make Moses' face shine as if he'd been on some sunbed for weeks and weeks, glowing with the glory of God. But look at how the people respond to this sort of second-hand glory. Verse 30 of Exodus 34. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. And so Moses puts on a veil to protect them from the sheer radiance of his glory so that they won't run away. And notice, there are now, therefore, two degrees of separation between the people and God's glory. There's the the cleft protecting Moses and then the cloth protecting the people. And such is the raw glory of this awesome, one true living God that that's that's what it takes for the people of God not to run away in fear. Two degrees of separation and they're just about okay. Do you see the point? This is a benchmark in glory, the ministry of Moses. But it wasn't quite safe, was it? Even with these provisions in place. If we turn back to 2 Corinthians, um, if you flick forward again, if you have a thumb spare, 1159. It's a glorious ministry, this ministry of Moses. But do you see verse seven, we read it already, it's a ministry that brought death. Or verse nine, it is a ministry that condemns men. Or over the page, verse 11, it's it's a ministry 
that fades, doesn't last. Why? There's nothing wrong with the glorious ministry of Moses. It is remarkable what's happening here at the mountain. The problem is the hearts of the people. If you remember the story, Moses is up the mountain being given the Ten Commandments from God and at the bottom of the mountain, the people are getting at the terrible things. God says to Moses at the top of the mountain, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. At the bottom of the mountain, the people are bowing down and worshiping a golden calf and they are, they are involved in a terrible orgy, a pagan festival. And even in this moment of glory, as God offers relationship to his people, we see the problem of the human heart. We all turn away from the Lord's requirements. We break his commands. We turn away from him. Our relationship is spoiled. And that is why it's a ministry of death and of condemnation, and it fades because of the human heart. Uh, We see this through the course of human history. After the golden calf incident, many died the next day, or that day when Moses came down. Throughout the course of Israel's history, we see again and again the utter helplessness of humanity to live how God would have us live. The ministry of Moses, a glorious ministry, but also a ministry that reveals the human heart. It reveals how time and again we rebel against God and break his commands. It's a ministry that that reveals the true states of our world as God sees it. Oh, we've seen a a particularly terrible example of what our rebellious heart will do in Manchester on Monday night willing to do terrible things against others. God's law says we should not murder, and murder happened. It's a terrible rebellion. Make no mistake about it. But it shows us that the problem with the human race is more than just one person committing a terrible act. The whole world is full of rebels. We may not kill people, but in our own ways, given half a chance, we break God's commands, we turn away from him, We worship other gods. We're not pure as he would have us to be pure. And so the ministry of Moses, it reveals the human heart. Paul says he's writing about hope. We need something better to hope in than the ministry of Moses. Something more glorious. And that takes us to our second point. A far greater glory, the ministry of the Spirit. And here Paul makes his contrast. If the ministry of Moses was glorious, well, look at verse eight. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Paul's talking about his ministry. That's clear from the start of chapter three when he talks about the ministry of the Spirit. He's talking about his message about Christ, which comes to people with the power of the Spirit to bring faith and conviction and belief. And he says, it is more glorious. It is better by far than the ministry of Moses. And he helps us to see why with three contrasts. The first one is this. uh, The ministry of the Spirit, it brings life, not death. You see how verse seven, the the ministry of Moses brings death, but the Spirit, verse six, just before, it brings life. 
And when Paul talks about life in 2 Corinthians, he doesn't just mean life here now when life works well and we're happy with how things are going. No, he means life in its fullest sense, a relationship with God, but also an eternal one. He says in chapter one, the spirit is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our glorious future. In chapters four and five, we'll talk about his confidence in the new creation. There is a life which will last forever and the spirit given to the Christian guarantees that we are part of that eternal life. You see that the ministry of the spirit in the heart of a Christian through the gospel of Christ tells us that we, we're not facing death, we have life How is this life possible? Here's our second contrast. The spirit brings righteousness, not condemnation. You see verse nine? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? We've seen, haven't we, that the law could only reveal the human heart. It It can't make us righteous. But Paul says that the ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of, of righteousness. How is this possible? Well, with your Bibles open, just over to chapter 5 and verse 21 of 2 Corinthians. And we'll come on to this in a few weeks' time, but just to steal ahead for a moment. Paul says, God made him, that is Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We probably know it well, but it's a wonderful truth nonetheless. At the heart of the Christian faith is the truth that Christ, who was the one perfect one who never sinned, was willing to give his perfect life in our place, to to swap with us, if you like, taking all of our sin onto himself, dying the death that we deserve, and leaving us with a perfect, unblemished life, his life, our righteousness. The ministry of the Spirit brings righteousness, not condemnation. It says to the Christian, fear not. Christ has died in your place. You now have his perfect life. God looks at you and sees not a condemned sinner, but a perfect child of God. And I think also, in that foundational sense, that's that's the point, but there's also an ongoing sense that the Spirit would also be at work in us to change us. And we'll say more on this in a moment. But yes, our righteousness is imputed, and that's foundational. But in an ongoing sense, in the life of a Christian, the Spirit is at work to make us even more like Christ, to transform us. And in that sense as well, the ministry of the Spirit is about a ministry of righteousness. And finally, our third contrast, the ministry of the Spirit is eternal, not temporary. See verse 11. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? I guess millions of people every year in this country have tried to change their hearts on their own and have totally failed. The diet plans, the anger management manuals, the tips on how to deal with anxiety. We try again and again, don't we, to change our hearts, to be better people. And the change might last for a week or two weeks or for a month or for even for, for a year maybe, but on our own, the change never lasts. 
But the work of the Spirit in the heart of the Christian is an eternal work, bringing about eternal glory. Sin won't spoil this work. It'll last forever. And when God enters a person by his Spirit, bringing righteousness and heart transformation, that work will always come to fulfillment. And so Paul concludes verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Ten years ago, Bugatti released a brand new car called the Veyron. If you're into cars, you know about the Bugatti Veyron. It, it was an amazing car. It broke all the rules about cars. It was the fastest road car ever made, 268 miles per hour, 1,000 brake horsepower. Remarkable, glorious car. For nine years, this last year, Bugatti brought out another car called the Chiron. Top speed, 296 miles an hour, 1,500 brake horsepower, an even more glorious car. Where does that leave the Veyron? It is glorious, make no doubt about it. But now compared to the new car, it's just not as glorious anymore. And that's something of the contrast Paul is making between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of the Spirit. Let's not think that Moses' ministry was bad or lacking glory. It was truly awesome. It's just now, compared to the work of the Spirit, it's nothing compared to what Christians have as God himself comes and dwells in our hearts by his Spirit. And so, verse 12, Paul is very bold he will go on talking about this hope that he has as he proclaims Christ, the the controversial, awkward, difficult Christ. He will preach it for there's a glorious hope for all who turn to Christ. But what does it look like for Paul as he boldly proclaims Christ? Well, here's our final point. From glory to glory, the ongoing power of gospel ministry. Verse 13, Paul says, We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to hide the glory. No, instead for Paul, he will make God's glory very public in his ministry. And at this point, Paul's not claiming that his face is glowing like Moses' face. No, the way that the glory works now is that it's as Paul proclaims the gospel, so God's glory is seen. And he won't veil the gospel If you want to check this up, then glance forward to next week uh, in chapter uh, 4 verse 3, he says that our gospel is veiled. You see, what's veiled here is not Paul's face, but it's, it's the gospel. He won't put a veil over the gospel. He will preach the gospel, for it is the glory of Christ. And so Paul will go around boldly saying to anyone and everyone, come and trust in Christ. But we might wonder, why does Paul's ministry look so weak so often? It's a big theme in 2 Corinthians. The, the weak apostle who's scorned and mocked by many, who, who smells of death to lots of people who hear his message. Why is that if he's so glorious as he preaches? Well, Paul helps us to understand. He says in verses 14 and 15 that there still remains a veil over people's minds. They cannot understand. I remember some years ago in, in a different church, Um, I preached my heart out about the gospel. I was saying that it's about grace, that we don't earn our salvation, but we we are given it freely by coming and trusting in the the death of Christ 
In him, we were given forgiveness. I used all my illustrations. I preached my heart out. At the end, as people left, one of them said to me, thank you for reminding us that God wants us to be good people. I think I was clear. I might have been unclear. I think I was clear that what God wants for us is to turn and trust in Christ. But there is a veil which hangs over people's hearts, even today, that as they read Moses, the law, they think that the law is saying, just try hard and you'll be good enough for God. When actually, if they could see Moses properly, they'd realize that he points forward to a greater glory. That the, the ministry of Moses is to show us that we cannot be good enough for God and we need something more glorious to rescue us. And sadly, again and again, as we preach Christ. People have veiled hearts and they they hear, actually, what we need to do is just try really hard to be good. If we keep all of God's requirements, he'll think we're a good person. He'll let us in. Maybe there's some here tonight who think that Christianity is about being a good person, trying hard to please God. Please hear me when I say, the Bible says no. We cannot we must come and cling to Christ for our forgiveness and our salvation. So that is why some people, when they hear this glorious gospel proclamation, don't get it because there's a veil. It's a heart issue. But there is hope. For people who have in the past heard the ministry of Moses and had a veil over their hearts, there is hope. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I think it's an often misunderstood verse. In the context, the freedom Paul is talking about is freedom from condemnation. Or perhaps more precisely, it is a freedom from wearing a veil over our eyes that blinds us to the rescue offered to us in Christ. And what we need is a mighty work of the Spirit to come into our hearts, to strip back the veil, to give us freedom that we may behold the true glory of Christ. It's a work no human can do, but the Spirit of God can. And when he does, and for those of us who are Christians trusting in Christ, there is something truly glorious. I love the picture in verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Actually, I think probably the footnote's more helpful. With unveiled faces all contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do we contemplate the Lord's glory? Well, I mentioned already, chapter four tells us It's by the gospel. As we see God's word, the gospel about Christ, that's where we find the glory of Christ displayed. Do you want to see glory? Do you want to see something truly awesome and full of hope? Don't go to a mountain covered in smoke with trumpets and earthquakes. Come with me instead and picture a scene that's happened this last week across many homes and in the church center and other places 
throughout this week as hundreds of people from this church family have gathered together with this book open, the gospel about Christ, and they've poured over it together, prayerfully. And as they've poured over the gospel, they have seen glory. That's verse 18. We all, with who unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. And what happens when we contemplate his glory? We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. They say that when couples get married and spend a life together, that they increasingly begin to look like each other and they begin to sound like each other and they begin to tell the same jokes and they have the same, increasingly the same opinions and perspectives on life. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I imagine Lorna's hoping it's definitely not true. But um, whether or not it's true for married couples, it is true when it comes to a Christian in Christ. A Christian who spends time with his Lord, contemplating his glory, looking at the scriptures, will be transformed by that glory to become more glorious themselves. I have often thought that it would be so much easier if we could have been at various key moments in the Bible storyline just to see kind of more tangibly the power and glory of God. I would have loved to have been at the mountain. Not too close, obviously, but at the mountain. Just to see for myself just how awesome and true that there is a God. Look, look how amazing he is. Wouldn't it have been amazing? Paul says there's something more glorious We have it better now, 2,000 years later, after Christ, because we can look at his glory and understand what he's done for us. We are in a far better place than the people back at Mount Sinai ever were. From glory to glory, the ongoing power of gospel ministry. Which means that we have all that we need to be transformed. It is a remarkable thought, isn't it? Verse 18, that as we gather for our morning quiet times or when we gather for a one-to-one with another Christian or we meet for a Bible study or we ring up and phone and have the Bible at the center of our conversation, we are contemplating the Lord's glory and it changes us. We are no longer the people we used to be and by God's grace in a year we will be people different compared to what we are now as we look at his glory Until one day when Christ returns and we see him face to face with our own physical eyes and we are not consumed by his glory, we will be changed by his glory once and for all, perfected. That is the hope we have from glory to glory, the ongoing power of gospel ministry. It keeps us going, doesn't it? My Bible studies rarely feel glorious or my quiet times. And so it's helpful to know that what is happening is glorious. And this is why Paul is full of hope. This is why, verse 12, he is very bold. He will go on speaking about Christ even if it's controversial because in Christ there is this remarkable hope for any who will believe. And I should say, when Paul uses the word hope, he's not using it how we often use it. You know, imagine someone might say to one of us, oh, I, I hope your exam goes well this week. 
that's expressing a sentiment. But when Paul talks about hope, he's talking about a concrete certainty that things are not, that are not visible now with our physical eyes, but are true, will become visible then when Christ returns. And we may not be able to see the full glory of gospel ministry now in our hearts and the lives of others, but one day when Christ returns and we realize how sweet life is in Christ, how wonderful it is to be righteous, not condemned, how amazing it is to be transformed by Christ, then we will realize how glorious this hope is. Paul was very bold. He wants the Corinthians not to be put off his bold message. Stick with Paul. But he wants us to be bold as well. He wants us to go out from tonight into a world confused about hope, grieving, mourning, unsure where to find security. He wants us to go out into this world and to preach hope boldly about Christ. We live in a dark and broken world. We live in a world where no amount of policing or education can protect us from evil. We live in a world where the big problem is the human heart. What can be done? Not trusting in the human spirit or in the Mancunian way, but with great boldness, proclaiming the glory of Christ who saves helpless people and who transforms broken hearts to become like his. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that there is hope in the gospel, how we need hope. Father, we thank you that there is a new creation where there be no bombs, no terror, no sin, no evil. We thank you that your spirit is at work now in this world to help men and women and children to see the glory of Christ and so put their hope in Christ. Please help us, Father, to be bold this week, even when it costs us to proclaim a radical, controversial Christ, confident that only in him will true hope be found. In Jesus' name, amen.